We're broadcasting live today from the South Dakota Festival of Books from SDPB Radio. It's Friday, September 22nd, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we're live from The Lodge in Deadwood, and this hour we will get to know a few of the authors bringing their stories to the Black Hills this year. We'll begin our conversation with Michelle Nyhouse. She'll introduce us to the creatures fighting for life in an age of extinction. Chuck Rosh brings you the true story of Corabelle Fellows and how her life on the Dakota frontier became a national scandal, and we'll ask the question, who reads in America today? Plus, our friend J. Ryan Straddle returns to the program. We'll talk Midwestern food and beer, love and loss, and how reality television influenced him as a novelist. We're broadcasting live today from the South Dakota Festival of Books in Deadwood. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there was a time when animal species were thought to be permanent. That is, nothing could ever go extinct. That time was relatively recent, just in the past few centuries. So what did people do when they learned that the creatures in their community might not always be their neighbors? The book, the book Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, tracks the history of the conservation movement from its infancy to its successes to where it has fallen short to its current state. Michelle Nyhouse tells this larger story through the stories of threatened species and the people who care about them. Michelle is a science journalist who has written for publications like National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and much more. And she's with me here in the Cody Room at the Lodge in Deadwood. Welcome. I'm so happy to meet you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I had to wrestle the copy of this book out of uh, our producer Ellen Kester's hands because she (laughs) was so invested in this. And I think um, to that end, it's really found a big audience, just getting a lot of coverage, a lot of attention. Were you, did you kind of know that this book was being released in the right moment or has that been a surprise to you? Well, it was released during the pandemic, so Uh, I was happy to see it come out at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm, yeah, I'm happy that people have taken an interest in these stories and, and, and in the people who have come before us who have done what I think probably seems impossible and has always seemed impossible, which is to protect um, the species we love and care about uh, from this almost unimaginable, really, fate of extinction, of global oblivion. I think that's very significant that it was released during that time. And we've been talking a lot about the literature of the pandemic and what came out of it and how artists and, and writers sort of navigated it. But you remember this whole time when, like, the world shut down and all of a sudden the dolphins came back to the canals and the, the foxes roamed the city streets. Mm. And we, we had an awareness of who our neighbors were that we didn't always see because our lights were on and we were commuting to work. So I think the pandemic maybe helped because <laughs> well, we were all thinking about it, right? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I do remember being very struck by those stories of, yeah, yeah you know, uh, these animals, some of us live closer to them than than others of us do, but but they are our neighbors. You know, we we sometimes I think make the mistake of thinking, oh, you know, wildlife they they live somewhere else, um, but they're really they're intertwined in our lives in a way that we 
may not often realize. And I think that that great quiet that happened at the very beginning of the pandemic showed us in some dramatic ways, you know, what happens when we go away? What even do the animals in the zoo do when we're not around? Yeah. <laughs> some okay. of them missed us, I think. Some of, But some of them were happy we were gone. But some of them, you know, kind of liked that daily interaction. And that brings me to one of the themes that I want to get to is this notion of wildness and what is the wild. Mm -hmm. And when we look at some of these people, I think it's important to say up front, their idea of the wild, there's a lot of colonization and white supremacy. Their idea of the wild is that, you know, this is, it's just me in the woods and I am, uh, you know, uh, on a great expedition as a white, sure. of a white, as a white mm -hmm. man to discover this place. And as you studied conservationists, you also um, were very honest in revealing the wholeness of who they were and some of them had ideas about what wild was yes very true and and i think i went into this knowing that there were some people in the conservation movement in the past who had some you know really reprehensible ideas but i didn't so much see it as a systemic problem in conservation and i didn't so much see it as connected to their ideas about conservation right. i just saw it as an unfortunate coincidence but as I got into it, I, I really, I found it disturbing, but also rewarding to just look at the modern conservation movement, um, look at this systemic thread of, um, you know, the association of, of wildness with purity and unfortunately sometimes racial, racial purity um, or an imperialism and, and think about why that is and how we can overcome it. And, and it was really important for me to to look at some of these historical figures um, and be able to hold two ideas in my head at the same time. There's no, you know, there's no way to justify or excuse um, these these really dangerous and destructive ideas that they had about race. Um, but there's also we shouldn't ignore um, the real foresight they had about the necessity of protecting other species. And I think we can look at both of those things uh, together uh, without minimizing or exaggerating either one of them yeah. um, and learn from them both. Right. So we have to have this, this conversation about why did we not, what did we used to think mm -hmm. about the abundance of God's creation and that we, as in people, as in white people, because mm -hmm. indigenous people did not think this, but that we could do whatever we wanted to it and it would just restore itself. And so go back to some of the early early moments of awakening in this continent um, from Europeans who come here and realize, no, God's not just gonna keep all the species mm -hmm. going for us. We're going to have to do something too. Yeah, I mean, really up until the Victorian era, people in North America and, and Europe believed and scientists believed that creatures were created by God and they endured unchanged um, and regardless of what humans might do to them. And, and, and of course, species were being driven extinct by humans on islands all over the world. Um, but, but there was just not a, uh, not an understanding that species could be driven globally extinct by human activities, which maybe seems strange to us now because we all learned in elementary school that this is possible. But on the other hand, there was such abundance, especially when, you know, Europeans came to North America, they saw these herds of buffalo darkening the plains and, you know, how could puny humans possibly drive them extinct? So in some ways that that 
denial or reluctance to believe um, makes some sense. But uh, there were a few people who, you know, were generally uh, wealthy, privileged folks who who were, you know, had the had the protection to to speak out and talk about unpopular things, who came to grips with this early on and said, look, you know, we're going to lose these species forever. We're going to lose even these really powerful, abundant species like the bison. They're going to be gone and we have to do something. But we have a moral duty to do something about this. Let's talk about the bison because there's a man who's essentially a taxidermist (laughs) who is one of the last bison hunters in order to save them. Tell us a little bit about that story and, and how his awakening unfolded. Yeah, I mean talk about ironies upon ironies the life of um of William Hornaday who was a, he was a taxidermist at what's now the Smithsonian Institution and you know at the time that was considered a a very uh effective way to let the public know about wildlife. There weren't documentaries. There weren't, you know, there wasn't cheap photography. Um so so he he recognized when he tried to get some good quality bison specimens when he came to the museum and he called his contacts on the planes and they said sorry we're you know flat out and so he his first action was to was again another another irony to go to Montana and and kill a few dozen of the last remaining free free roaming bison and I think we can certainly argue about whether or not that was the best possible choice at the time. But he did uh, he did build this very remarkable display of bison figures in a imitation of their original habitat. And I think people on the East Coast got up close to these animals. You know, unless you've been close to a bison, I don't think you really grasp how huge they are. And it, you know, millions of people saw this exhibit at the Smithsonian and it really made a, a big cultural impact. And if you're just visiting, do not get up close. No, do not get close. And to see how big they are, you might learn the hard way that they're bigger than you think and faster. You can still see this display, by the way, in Montana safely. And it is impressive, even with all the access we have through high definition photography. It's amazing to get close to these figures and have their eyes follow you around the room. So when he did that hunting, and, and then he's the one who puts his hands in the innards, really, to do the work of, of mounting them, does he go through some kind of, of change? Is that, only, is that left up to our imagination, or did he record that at, at all to sort of say, because I think you're right about the, you know, it, it's not easy to bring down a bison that's as large as... It's not, and he did have. I mean, Hornaday is a bit of a self was a bit of a self mythologizer, so it's a little hard to tell, you know, what he actually felt at the time, and then what he was sort of retroactively constructing as a narrative of his life. But uh, he, as he tells it, he did have, you know, he always he I think always admired and and cared about animals in his way, but he did when he was taking down one of these bison, um, you know, large male bison, he did have a, a moment when the bison was dying and he met the bison, the animal's eyes, um, you know, as it was leaving this life and never forgot that. And, and I think that experience and experiences like it motivated him over what would become, you know, several decades of work to first bring the problem 
to the attention of the urban public and then to eventually return, help return bison to the plains. There, you know, you mentioned Rachel Carlson in this book and Aldo Leopold, and I want to talk about your forestry chapter and this sort of transition from thinking this a creature is a, a, an animal, a bird, um, and it is about land, that the ecosystem is, is more than the, how interconnected everything that is. What, what does that bring up for you that you want to start with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that came through for me. I, you know, I've written about conservation as a, as a journalist for a long time. And, and I think the, the experience of writing this book helped me realize how we as, as a society and the, the modern conservation movement has the, the really powerful thing that it has accomplished over the last century is to to go from thinking of these animals as as individuals who we want to protect um, from very direct threats like being overhunted to an understanding that they are part of a system that we are also part of um, and that we also depend on and that the real point of conservation of any kind is to protect those connections, whether it's with the landscape, whether it's between species, whether it's between us and other species, that's the, that's the real project of conservation. Um, of course, we don't want individual animals who we love and respect to be, to be killed in an untimely way, but we, we really want to keep the system going because, it, because that's what supports us all. Yeah. Um, hope is a, is a word that uh, we are hesitant to use, but we also feel like there is an empowerment, like we can make change. It is up to us and it's not too late or is it too late? Yeah. Tell me how you kind of put into context the idea of how urgent the situation can be when we're talking about species extinction, particularly in the, the change in climate, but also the power of humans to change course which is clearly laid out in this book yeah. time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. Hope is such a tricky word. Um, uh, and, and as a, you know, as a journalist who writes about environmental issues and climate change, those of us who, who do that kind of thing, we think a lot about how to inform you without depressing the heck out of you. <laughs> and, um, and it's difficult to do because the the threats are huge, and as we've all experienced, you know, as the climate crisis has accelerated, and you know, right in front of us, there are um, we are dealing with an extremely complex set of interlocking crises when we think about preserving these systems. As I talked about, um, that said, I think we can look to the past and see that that you know the people I write about and many other people have moved forward and done what they saw as the right thing, even in overwhelmingly difficult times. I mean, Aldo Leopold was working during the Dust Bowl, was working during World War II, when I'm sure things seemed, crises seemed just as existential as they do today. It's only in retrospect that we know that, you know, uh, that, that the war ended and that the Dust Bowl was to some extent resolved. I mean, he didn't have that kind of um, perspective. And so he has a quote in there which uh, that I quote, I quote him saying this, and it's something that I continue to go back to a lot, where he's writing to a friend in, in kind of a, um, you know, one of his grimmer moods, and he says that the situation is hopeless should not prevent us from doing our best. And, and I like that because it's, 
because it allows us to move forward even in times when we may lose hope. And I think there are times when we all, we, we shouldn't have to maintain confidence and good results in order to do the right thing. Um, and I think that's, what's, that's what keeps me going, um, is, is just knowing that there always is a, a right thing to do and we can continue doing that, um, no matter the outlook, because there's always ways we can take care of each other and the rest of life. Yeah. Let's leave with a story of something in this book that surprised and delighted you. Um, one of those small stories that you just had to put in. <laughs> what, what comes to your mind? Oh, what comes to my mind is a story I heard. I was lucky to get to spend time in Namibia during the course of research for this book. And Namibia has a very well-established community conservation uh, program that for several decades has returned uh, conservation management, some conservation management authority to communities. And so they now manage their own wildlife and, and it's, it's redistributed the benefits and the burdens of conservation in a way that I think is really powerful. And I think that we could all learn from because the conservation movement for too long has been very top down, you know, because of some of these elite beginnings that we talked about. And, um, one of the conservationists I spent time with told me a story of, of doing, um, you know, just doing some studies of, of plants early on during the establishment of this of this um, community conservation network. And he was speaking to an elder in one of the communities and, and talking to him about one of the one of the local trees and, and saying, Okay, well is this tree medicinal? Does it you know, is it used for shelter? And and he said, No, no, no and and the conservationist said, Okay, well just kind of offhandedly said, Okay, well the well then the tree doesn't have any particular value and, and the and the the elder said, What are you talking about? The birds use it to sit on <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that is a piece of wisdom that I will be thinking about for a long time. Yeah, well said. All right, this book is called Beloved Beasts Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Our author is Michelle Nyhouse. I'm going to spell her last name for you since we're on the radio. N-I-J-H-U-I-S. And we'll put a link up to her book on our website at sdpb.org slash news so you can find it. We're live today from the South Dakota Festival of Books. We'll take a break. More after that break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh, and we're broadcasting live today from The Lodge in Deadwood at the South Dakota Festival of Books. And my next author has joined me at the table right now. Life Painted Red tells the true story of Corabelle Fellows, a white woman from Washington, D.C., and her marriage would become a scandal that shook the nation. Details of her life splashed across headlines in newspapers from around the country. Well, Chuck Rosh is an author and a journalist who has worked for Gannett News Service and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. His previous book was called Imperfect Union, A Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. And Chuck is returning to the show now. He's with me in the Cody Room at the Lodge in Deadwood. Chuck, welcome back. Good to be here. Like five people who told me to say <laughs> hi to Chuck Rosh when I saw him. So hi from pretty much all of South Dakota. Thank you. How often do you get back here? Um, quite a bit. You know, yeah. two or three times a year usually. And you came yeah. back for this book. Tell us a little bit about how you came upon the story of Corbell Fellows and that intersects with your life as a, as a newspaper man. Uh, I was uh, on a fellowship in 1989 studying political migration at Stanford University. And as part of that, I was... Um, 
I, I was, it, this was pre-internet, obviously, so I was going through old microfiche and microfilm newspapers, and um, I ran across a, a, a newspaper, the St. Louis or St. Paul Globe, and in it there was a half-page ad that was showing what were called dime museums. It was advertising what were dime museums, what we sometimes call freak shows, the world's strongest man, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and the, the headline was in, like, type, well, you can't see it on the radio, but it, it's probably two inches tall, that said, she married a savage. And it's, it was a story, it, it, they, were, they were going on the freak show circuit as a uh, mixed, mixed racial marriage couple um, because they'd been in the headlines all over the country. And I thought at that time, uh, there's got to be a story behind this, and boy, there is. And um, it just took me this long to get back at it. So Yeah. So immediately, did, what came to your mind about um, newspapers, too, at the time? Because there's a lot about yellow journalism yes. in this book, which I think is probably wouldn't have come up as much if it wasn't written by, by you. You do a really good job of sussing that out and pointing that out. Yeah. You know, the term yellow journalism usually is associated with the Spanish-American War and what William Randolph Hearst did to get us in, the, in that war. But this, this takes place before that, uh, several years before that. And it's my uh, hypothesis in the book that this is one of the first real cases of yellow journalism, which really was sensationalist, sensationalism and, um, and, you know, focusing on little things and trying to make them into bigger divides. Uh, and that sort of thing, and I, you know, and the and the usual is well, that's in the past, and here's where history connects to the present. Where do you see that today? I mean, turn on your cable TV tonight. Um, that's yellow journalism to me. Um, and so I, I thought I didn't really place that at the time, but the more research I did into this woman and what she had to go through, first of all, I was ashamed for my profession, uh, and second, secondly, I was ashamed of that age of of how willingly and easily people used words that were to demean and hurt and uh, cast people of different races or sexes or any differences in the, in the most negative of lights. And so uh, I think it's a lesson for today, too, that, you know, we sort of got through that period. Journalism, you know, sort of righted itself for a good part of the 20th century. And now I think we're back in it again and we've got to get out of it. Tell us who Corabelle is and why she comes west. She is. She was five foot tall, weighed a hundred pounds, and she <laughs> came out here and she broke horses and she did everything. She chopped her own wood. She did everything. She was a twenty-three year old uh, woman from Washington D.C. Her mother was a, a socialite, uh, a friend of the of Grover Cleveland, uh, was a social climber. Uh, and after she married this native man, Sam Campbell disowned her, never talked to her again. Um, and, um, and, but she, she spirited on. Uh, they had a marriage here. Uh, the marriage, obviously, uh, after a few years, uh, those of you that will read the book, you'll, you'll find out all the details of it. But the marriage fell apart under all of this pressure. But even to the end, she remained her optimism. She loved this country. Um, she, she wanted to remain here, but she finally had to leave because of, I think, all of the notoriety. So I ended up living in Wichita, Kansas, the last year of her life, where she wrote down her life story while blind. Um, she had a system where uh, her daughter, her, her granddaughter would come home after school uh, and, and she would help her by moving a rubber band down the page. And she'd write that and then she'd move the rubber band down the page. And so I was lucky enough to discover that, that those uh, memoirs were still in the family. 
so sometimes she mess there's like she writes over the page there's right. some frustrating parts about that so uh, when you when you search for the research of of her own words and then some of this was made into another book but right. altered significantly tell yes. us a little bit about how this story has been published before right and what you discovered about the veracity of that there there was a book written supposedly in her name but under under a uh, a woman by the name of Cunigan Dun Duncan from o Oklahoma. She wrote it in 1935. The family of Corabel Fellows hypothesizes that this woman thought she was writing another Little House on the Prairie. So um, she sanitized a lot of the of the book, um, and uh, and in the end, she she hinted at reconciliation with her family, which never came. Um, and so that was obscured. But what was really the most um, really, I think the most offensive part of that book was uh, Corabel lived for a year with a, a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Winyon, who was a Dakota Sioux, who was of renown among white and native uh, people around here as a healer. Um, she'd survived a massacre at two years old uh, by hiding under a, a, a pot um, for two days. Um, and then her mother finally came back and got her a tremendous life story. Well, in the original book, she's, she's, um, she's, she's referred to as a uh, heavyset old woman who, you know, really was no, of no use to her, just was kind of hanging around when in reality she was the leader of the two of them. And uh, Corabel came to, to view her as her mother. She called her her mother for the rest of her life. So in that original book, she was totally... Um, mischaracterized. And I think that's a lesson that we should learn from a lot of history, that a lot of times when you go back to the original source on some of these things, uh, they're written to, I think, the biases of the time. And I think in 1935, you know, when, the, when all the movies were still portraying natives as these wild uh, people that were out to kill all whites and whatever, that it would not have been... Um, it would not have been accepted to portray her on an equal term, I think, with this white woman in 1935. But now she is in my book. I think it's interesting. There was another author who here, is here at the, the festival, interestingly enough, right. uh, writing about uh, the Patty Hearst kidnapping and how that was covered in, in right. the media. And they referred to a woman they kind of wanted you to know, not pay as much attention to as heavy set, not very well spoken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that we, the words that we use to make women disappear, right. in this case, in, intentionally, old, yes. Absol irrelevant. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I I, in my foreword of my book, I say uh, this book is about women, um, and, and in some ways I think it's for women in this regard. I think in a, in a lot of our Western history in particular, women were portrayed either as sidekicks or victims. And, um, and I, think there's, I think there's a need to go back and revisit that and retell that story because every single adventure this woman faced... Um, you know, we had been written about in, in ad infinitum about men facing blizzards and breaking horses and chopping wood and, you know, and, and, you know, going through blizzards, surviving a tornado. She did all of that and more. And she was a, she was a 23 year old woman from, you know, from Washington, DC, who'd never been here. Once when she came out here and got off the train, she was greeted, uh, she was a teacher and she was greeted at a, this was in, uh, this happened to be in Nebraska. She started in Nebraska and then came up here. And when she got off the train, um, she, there was a crowd there to meet her that was just like filling the, the, the railroad station. And some, some gentleman came up to her and grabbed her and hugged her with two pistols and shot him in the air. And then everybody else around him shot him in the air. And that was her introduction to Nebraska territory. So... <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about her as a teacher. She's working at a boarding school. She's right. a Christian missionary. What's in her heart? 
She um, she was very she had she claimed she was born again at eighteen. She went to to divinity school in um, in Illinois. Her parents had sent her west because she'd fallen in love with a with a British, British diplomat who was twenty some years her superior and was trying to carry on a, a secret relationship with him and. Um, her parents ended up sending her out here and to uh, to Illinois to a divinity school, and she she came out here with all these great intentions of you know of of uh, helping the you know the native people assimilate um, and um, you know to teach them English. Um, you know there were big debates about whether to preserve the traditional Lakota and Dakota languages at that time and whatever. And over time, she 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 changed her attitudes on that. She she learned the uh, the languages herself, became very con- very versed in it, um, and in the end, toward the end of her life, actually helped to get some uh, native songs um, transcribed and recorded by a very famous. Um, very famous uh, music teacher at uh, Wichita State University, within that, and they're in their archives now. And so, she really was transformed. But when she came out here, she she had this whole idea that she was coming from this superior civilization that was going to bring these native peoples, you know, into the into the into the white world. One of the tensions with their marriage and the racism that we see at the time being played out again and again is that she has to support her husband, because there's a stereotype that he does not want to work. Tell me a little bit about this family trying to figure out how to make money and how to live in a world and how this idea of a woman supporting, you know, being a leader of a family was also part of the scandal. Right. Sam, Sam Campbell was a, was a, was a farmer and a rancher. And so, and he, he did work. Um, but the but the common perception in the press and the way he was portrayed in the press was this illiterate, barely speaking, um, you know, person who did not work, and nothing could be further from the truth. He actually was was um, educated in an Eastern boarding school, probably had more education than Corabel did in the final analysis. Um, but he he cor- he sort of got it from both sides. He he wasn't accepted in the white communities. And he wasn't accepted in the in the full blood native communities. In fact, some of his the biggest grief he got was from the native communities because their marriage was happening as the Dawes Act was was had been signed, and he he was getting pressure to uh, and she was getting pressure to, you know, to um, to endorse that and to go along with that and to you know come out and campaign for it. Uh, he also was getting pressure to you know come out against Sitting Bull, which he wouldn't do, and so all of that sort of was mixed um, into a. Uh, into a real, uh, uh, there was no way he could have won under that circumstance. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what you hope this story offers people today. Well, I, I think mainly what I hope is that, is that don't, don't, I think we really do need to reexamine a lot of our history, particularly of the American West and the way it portrayed women. Um, and I think, and I know there's been a whole series of, of genres that have, that have come through the years, but um, I think we need to really turn it upside down in, in some ways and, and to understand more of, of why this, the, the storytellers were almost always males. Um, that's, you know, we did that with our wars. Uh, all the books that were written about the Civil War, is almost all of them were written about generals, all of whom thought they won the war by themselves. And, um, and frank, frankly, the best book I think it was ever written about the Civil War was written, written about a private in U.S. Grant's Army in 1864. I think that was the best book. But my point here is that, you know, I think we need to take women out of the role of victims and of, of companions and see them in their own light on the frontier.
So circling back to what you said in the beginning about the age of journalism and what you just said about books, that brings us up to why we're here, which is the reader. Right. And the argument would be, well, this is what people bought. This is what people were reading. Right. They're turning into that uh, cable exactly. news because, or you can get the clicks that way. And you have some... Uh, News about who yes. reads in, <laughs> today. Tell I, us, tell I, us what you brought to the table. One of my good friends in life is a man named Neil Newhouse. It may be that name may ring a bell vaguely to you. He, you'll see him on TV every once in a while. He's he does polling for the Wall Street Journal for NBC News, and he was Mitt Romney's pollster in 2012. And he knew I was coming out here, and we were talking about you know who reads today, and who doesn't read. And my my theory was. Well, we're in the age of Twitter, you know, sort of the cheap tweet. And so readership is going down. And he just sent me this morning the results of his poll. And um, he says, he said, now people can answer more than once on this. So 40% of Americans over the last uh, past year is, is the timetable. 40% of Americans have read a hardcover. 43% have read paperback. 20% have read Kindle or e-reader. And 16% have read on their, on their phone. So that's going to add up to more than 100 because people are doing that. Only 30% said they hadn't read a book. And I thought it would be much higher than that, particularly in this age. But the one thing that really surprised me the most was the age group that reads more than any other age group, 18 to 34. Now, I have a theory on that. <laughs> I think we're at the beginning of a backlash to the cheap tweet culture. And I think there's a yearning for, you know, a, more of a sit-down sit resoluteness and repose and digging deeper into subjects rather than just sort of sitting out there and trying to do a hot take on, on the Internet. And um, it, it actually is pretty encouraging to me. It's th this, this polling surprised him. Some of the other um, high-end high readers, 81% high, higher-educated Republicans, 81%. Union households, 82%. Women college grads, 83%. College grads in general, 79%, and 18, 18 to 34-year-olds were 80%. 75% of women said they had read a book in the last year. So. Wow. All right, there's your breaking news for the day. Yeah. Wrapped up. Well, I mean, here we are in the Festival of Books, and already the tables are getting unpacked out there. This room is full. We've got standing room only. People are reading. People are reading in South Dakota, and uh, it's a whole weekend of gathering here in Deadwood to talk about those books and, and talk about writing as well. Lots of workshops happening. So Chuck Rash, the book is called Life Painted Red. It is the true story of Corabel Fellows and how her life on the Dakota frontier became a national scandal. Lots of great stuff in there. Thank you so much, Chuck for stopping by in the moment. Thank you for having me. We'll take a break. When I come back, Jay Ryan Straddle is with us here on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Yes, that is right. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, my next guest is a familiar voice to In the Moment listeners because every time he writes something, I invite him back to see how many times I can have J. Ryan Straddle as a guest. He's the author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest, The Logger Queen of Minnesota, and his newest book, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. And we are here broadcasting live from the South Dakota Festival Books. We're in the Cody Room at the Lodge in Deadwood. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's such an honor. And your copy of the book is just covered with independent bookstore stickers. Tell me a little bit about that and some of the, the places that uh, you're carrying with you today. Well, I'm from a, a smallish town in Minnesota called Hastings. Uh, it's on the Mississippi River between Red Wing and St. Paul. And not a lot of authors came into my town growing up. So as an author now, I make it a point to go to independent bookstores in smaller towns throughout the Midwest and be that author that goes off the beaten track and uh, finds readers where they are. 
you have to find a ton of copies of your book in those places because when I go throughout the Midwest, you're you're almost always on the shelf. Oh, that's so kind. Um, you're somebody's staff pick just about <laughs> everywhere we go. Oh boy, it's it's still tremendously surreal to me. I was talking to Michelle about that before this program about how I've I've been a writer now for ten years. I have three mm-hmm. books in the world, and I still can't believe it. I still expect an email uh, uh, from somebody saying. Oh, that was a joke. Like, uh, it, <laughs> this isn't going to work out. You're going to have to do something else. Um, and yeah, I mean, just this uh, morning, I got an email from my editor about the paperback version of this book, and, I've, and the language of the email was along the lines of, "Oh, um, I was kind of sorry to put you out, you know, make you do this work." And I just thought, "This is the best work in the world. I can't wait to do this. Are you nuts? This is this beats work. This yeah. is tremendous uh, that I that I get to do this." And get to write these books and meet readers. So Lakeside Supper Club, your writing during the pandemic largely impacted (laughs) your research, at least impacted your ability to like go to a place and experience it firsthand. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. I had to write a book about a restaurant during a year of my life where I didn't go to one Mm -hmm. uh, at all, (laughs) let alone get on a plane and go to a Midwest Supper Club. Uh, So I had to make up for that by interviewing current and former supper club owners and managers, including my former boss at the Steamboat Inn in Prescott, Wisconsin, Mike Rowan, and uh, get their stories over the phone and via email. Yeah, which was contrasting to kind of discovering the lager queen on the road because every all roads led back to beer for a while there in Minnesota with all these independent breweries. But now that you're taking the lager queen on tour, are you finding that you... that that you got something right, that you got something that you're like, oh, yeah, like that was exactly as I imagined it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, quite often, but I still get things wrong. I said, uh, that sounds like an arrogant question. Yep, I got everything right. Oh, but you know what not. I'm asking there. I mean, yeah. is there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did feel that both the descriptions that the curtain former supper club owners gave me and my own memories of it were. Uh, accurate. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, uh, it's fiction. So there's a little bit of leeway here um, where where details maybe uh, didn't line up with reality. I can say, well, I'm a utopian writer. I when I sit down to write, I think of worlds that I want to live in. If you're going to spend three and a half years inhabiting a fictional world in your mind, it better be one you enjoy. Um, And so I couldn't think of many settings that I enjoyed growing up more than the supper clubs. Uh, I mean, when I tell got people that, what a supper club is, oh, so that sure. if they're not, if they're listening outside of the Midwest, what, what do we mean when we say supper club? Oh, well, I feel very sorry for someone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> I, I'll have my, uh, character Mariel describe it if that's okay. Please. The next best place to heaven in Mariel's experience was a type of restaurant found in the upper Midwest called a supper club. When she walked into a good one, she felt both welcome and somewhere out of time. The decor would be old-fashioned, the drinks would be strong, and the dining experience would evoke beloved memories, all for a pretty decent price. The sign outside her building read, Fine Dining at a Fine Value since 1919, and since everyone trusts a neon sign, fulfilling that promise was the duty of the owner, which she had been for the last two weeks. On her watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray, and basket of bread, followed by a round of brandy old fashions, 
And then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. <laughs> and a good, a good relish tray. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I ran into the most controversy was what so constitutes what, what a, relish, a relish tray. It yeah. really varied from place to place. Uh, the only yeah. agreement was that it was cold. Like nothing was heated on it. Mm-hmm. It was cold food. But I saw a range of offerings on it from pickled herring to pickled chicken gizzards yeah, to uh, cheese curds. Um, hmm. You name it. There's little of everything depending on the owner. And so I had fun writing about relish trays in the book. There's so much uh, love and and humor and tenderness and heartbreak in this novel. And one of the most delightful conflicts, which we have talked about before, in case you haven't and need one more reason to go pick up Saturday night at the Late Sight Supper Club, is this idea that Muriel's mother comes and she is supposed to pick her up at church. She hits a deer on the way there. She doesn't pick her up, and the mother decides, Noah, I'll wait. And that turns into an epic battle that lasts a long time of her waiting for my daughter to pick me up at church and her daughter saying, not coming, get another ride. <laughs> how, how did you find this sort of foil to turn and really reveal the depth of the conflict that a mother and daughter can have in a relationship and how it's resolved and not resolved over a lifetime, really? Wow, that's a heck of a question. Um, yeah, Florence spends an entire summer waiting in the lobby of our Savior's Lutheran Church for a ride home from her daughter. Um, <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing it. I, that was the first part of the book I wrote was all of Muriel's chapters. I wrote each character as discrete units and blended them later into the narrative. Uh, but I knew the ending of the book before I started, so I knew how this would resolve. And I wanted to create a humorous, uh, a humorous circumstance that could be explicated dramatically and reveal itself to be a little bit more than just merely funny. I deal with parent-child relationships a lot in my books because I write all my books from my mom, uh, who passed away um, 18 years ago now and never lived to see any of my books get published. But this book in particular is full of her. Uh, She's Mariel. In this book, she gets to hang out with her friends again, and she's alive in these pages. And one of the things I wanted to bring to life was a little bit of my mom's relationship with her mom, Doris, who is still alive, is 99, just turned 99 last month, still a reader, and uh, is a tremendously complex Midwest woman of her own. My character, Edith Magnuson, from Logger Queen, is largely based on Doris, but don't tell Doris, so is Florence. And (laughs) imagine a cross between Edith Magnuson and Florence, and you've got my grandmother. And that, to me, is the kind of person I've always wanted to write about and the circumstances around the relationships that they abet and dissolve in their own way. Uh, I just don't see it in fiction that often, these types of Midwestern women and the experiences that they create around them. Yeah. through the force of their personality. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about advice for writers um, since we are at a book festival. And I, I came across a delightful piece, which I actually hadn't seen before, that you wrote in Vanity Fair mm. about your work as a television producer on reality TV shows and what that did to inform your fiction. And, like, that's the MFA for you right there is Deadly's Catch and The Bachelorette. And I just thought that was fascinating. So tell a little bit of... of um, in your second book, I think it is Logger Queen. Like you had to cut 
mm. 200, 500 pages just left behind. And you learned that from Deadliest Catch? I did, yeah. T- tell us that story. Yeah, I was very uh, fortunate to have worked on Deadliest Catch for a few seasons. And the first episode I worked on was the, uh, it was called, um, well, I forget the title, but it was the episode in which the Katmai went down, which is a catcher processor. Uh, not a boat we were covering, per se, but a boat um, doing fishing in the same water at the same time as, the, as our featured ships. And that boat sank, and only four of the nine crew survived. And I was just, thr- <laughs> forgive the expression, thrown into the deep end, asked to produce this episode from scratch, having not worked on this series yet, and dealing with um, tens of thousands of hours of footage and interviews, and I had to, I only had a chance to watch each interview one time, and I had to discern instantly, uh, one viewing, what lines would be used in what order in the episode these lines from these interviews would be portrayed uh, to form a coherent and hopefully compelling narrative. And that alone was a tremendous lesson, but also... (laughs) <laughs> the lack of sentimentality <laughs> when it comes yeah. to cutting. Uh, so much good stuff gets captured by those cameras up in Alaska, and you find yourself cutting things that you wouldn't have imagined because they're just not moving the story forward. They're not entertaining, they're not informational enough, or they're redundant. And those lessons I've applied to my fiction in terms of narrative consequence, um, propulsive action, and act breaks, i.e. Uh, chapter breaks. Uh, yeah, say, yeah, say more about that for, for the writers in the room. Thinking about, uh, you know, scenes and, right. and breaks between those scenes and chapters. I know, I still think of my book as, as a, in terms of a series of scenes. Yeah, um, yeah and I think of chapter endings as an, as an act break, as a cut to commercial. Like, how could I end a chapter in a way that I used to end... Uh, um, I forget what it's called, like a, what they, a segment of, yeah. <laughs> it's, it hasn't been that long, I already forget the terminology, uh, the, the way I used to end a segment of uh, Deadliest Catch, and how do you get people coming back for more? How do, you, yeah. how do you ask a question in an honest way that will compel the reader to find the answer? Keep us turning the pages all <laughs> night long. So then that would lead to the logical conclusion, which I think anybody who's read your books can say, is that these would be great shows. They, they're very cinematic. In, in a lot of ways, the characters are, are rich. Any desire to bring the books to the screen and, and live in both those worlds? Oh, the desire is there on my part. <laughs> <laughs> it's there on my part, too. I'd yeah. like to see that. Yeah, we'll see. Of course, we're in a writer's strike and an actor's strike right now, so that's probably the wrong conversation. Or maybe it's the right conversation for the right time that these stories aren't getting made because there's no deal in that that world, unless I missed it this morning before I came to work. Uh, No, I don't believe there was a deal by the time I sat down. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that's what's one of the things holding it up now. And so uh, right now it's purely theoretical. There has been interest. The books have been optioned in the past, but nothing's gone into production yet. Um, the theme of food, again and again in your work, is so important to a lot of us. I mean, I think back to Kitchens, the Great Midwest, when we were just talking about bars mm-hmm. and, and different bar recipes, mm-hmm. which, of course, lends itself so beautifully to book clubs and, and bringing, you know, the food with you. But why is food so important to your work as a fiction writer? Oh, I'm making up for lost time. I grew up with 
lovely parents. I love my mom and dad, but they were terrible cooks. <laughs> uh, I had to leave home to find anything resembling edible food. Um, I mean, they kept me alive. I can't, I can't begrudge them. Uh, uh, you know, my my mom just viewed food as a procedure. Um, as you know, she put sustenance on the table for her family, and my dad. I think my dad could probably go days without eating. Uh, he may. Um, uh, he, he has less interest in cooking than my mom does. Um, he happens to be an extremely healthy eater, but very monochromatic in his diet. Uh, whereas my mom attempted variety. Um, butter was her favorite spice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, different uh, types of meat and cheese blends. Um, yeah, but... I, I feel like my mission in life from a young age was to experience food as it could be experienced. Uh, I got an idea early on that there was great food out there somewhere, and that's how I spent my disposable income as a teenager. My that's high fun. school girlfriend, Stacey Wolmering, and I would go to the uh, restaurants of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and try a different cuisine every weekend. Wow. <laughs> I feel like you're recreate. You bring that full circle because everybody who reads your book is like upping their Midwestern food game. Because I too was raised in a house where we weren't eating the things that are being fed here. So we're going to wrap up with J. Ryan Straddle. The book, his latest book, is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. It is a novel, and we uh, thank all of our wonderful audience members for being so supportive and warm and generous this hour. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we're live all weekend, or well, we're live today, but we're here all weekend at the Festival of Books. So stop by and say hello. From all of us here, we thank you for listening. Thank you.